We are 29 days away from Easter Sunday. Easter Sunday uh, being that global significant date in the calendar. And it's the one where we head towards with so many ideas of what it is, why it is, and then even on the day, how do we go about celebrating Easter? For us this year, we are going to be hosting an Easter Sunday worship service. It'll be our usual time of 9 a.m. Easter, the word, has nothing to do with Christianity. It actually was the name of an English pagan goddess that would have been worshipped pre-Christendom. The worshipping of this goddess was that she was the goddess professed by the people of new seasons, spring in the United Kingdom. And so I can see the relative association between Easter and what we would ultimately celebrate, and that being the resurrection of Jesus, because Easter is the celebration of new beginnings, new seasons, new life, uh, which really are fundamental messages of our Christian faith. Hence, you would have Easter eggs, because it symbolizes new life. But our celebration of Easter is way more aligned to the Jewish festival known as Passover. The dates don't necessarily align to the day, but Christendom adopted this pagan festival when uh, Christendom became the official religion of certain lands. But Passover is an age-old celebration that aligns to everything of what ultimately Easter should be about. When you look at the Passover, the best book to look at, the literal uh, experience of Passover comes from the book of Exodus in our Old Testaments. And really what Exodus is accounting for is the liberation and freedom that God brought to his people because his people had been held captive. They were in literal slavery. They were oppressed for generations. They cry out to God and God answers their prayers through a man called Moses. And by using Moses, he brings liberation and freedom to an entire people group. And what the Jewish people memorialize or ultimately focus in on in this celebration of Passover, it is the liberation and freedom of the people. It's often referred to as the festival of freedom. They memorialize that very specific event that took place where um, death passed through. And because there was the blood of the lamb, on doorposts, instructed by God, life was preserved for those who were faithful to the instruction of God. And so through the shedding of blood, the blood of the lamb, people were saved into new life and were brought into freedom. 
Passover is also often referred to as the month of salvation. It's the time where the people of God would remember and therefore celebrate that God rescues and that God saves. That for those of us who would call out to God, there is rescuing power found in the blood of the Lamb. So over the next couple of weeks, uh, 29 days, whenever we get together, we're going to be building towards Easter Sunday, or what we can best describe as Resurrection Sunday. The day in which we celebrate that Jesus, being fully God and fully man, can sometimes blow our minds a little bit, I appreciate But that is the reality of the rescue plan of God, that he chose to step into the oppression of humanity in the form of a human. That he took on flesh and blood, and by doing so, stepped into the mess. Didn't choose to try and fix up the mess from the outside. It's the way God works. He always works on the inside out. And so God, in the form of Jesus, he is alive on Resurrection Sunday, and that is the culmination and celebration of everything of what took place in what we know to be Good Friday, which is an interesting way to describe a day, right? That we would describe a day as being good based upon the brutal murder and crucifixion of a blameless person. So it wasn't so good for Jesus But yes, it was very good for us. Because in that shame-enduring, painful, brutal process that is a crucifixion of a person, Jesus in his death brings life. Because we would know to be Jesus as being the perfect lamb of God. And so here we get this conjunction between the Passover, where there is the celebration of an entire people group uh, because of the freedom that God brought through the shedding of blood of a lamb. Death brought life in Jesus. We have death to him, but life to us. Life in its fullness. Life in its significance. Life eternal, because we believe there is an eternity before us. And it's a good way to live your life, to appreciate the fact that, yes, this life is very real, but there is a life that is way beyond anything of what we could comprehend time to be before us. And to have that eternal perspective, that there will be a time where flesh and blood expires. And for many of us, we've experienced the loss of that flesh and blood expiring whether it be loved ones or people we know. And even in our area of late, there has been significant human loss. What next? And over this time, that question of what next is a pivotal question, especially as we head towards Easter. Because of the blood that was shed by Jesus, for those of us who would believe, and therefore receive, there is a beautiful, profound, what next? The Passover was uh, one of three travel experiences for the Jewish people of the time to celebrate the goodness of God. 
So there were certain feasts and there were certain festivals that took place that were ordained by God, and they all had very specific reasons and uh, very good intent behind them. Three of the seven major festivals or feasts were known as pilgrimage festivals. In other words, Jewish people who would have been scattered right across the known world at that time would have chosen three times a year to actually congregate and to come together in the central holy place of Jerusalem. And in this particular Passover that we're about to touch on in the Gospels, we would see Jesus being crucified and resurrected at a very pivotal time and it aligning to the actual celebration of what Passover was. It's amazing that we would start to see all of these coincidences, all of these aligning moments, all of these prophecies being fulfilled, that there would be the Passover taking place in real terms. So we find ourselves 2,000 odd years ago in the city of Jerusalem where there are people of God coming together from all parts of the world to celebrate the significance of Passover. And it's at this place that Jesus is crucified. And it's at this place that Jesus fulfills what his intent was for us. And so over the next couple of weeks, this really just being a bit of a tone-setting messages and perhaps to pose some questions to us, to get us to consider, to pray, to ponder, then we can really start to elaborate on a few aspects of what this Easter journey means for every single one of us. We're going to go to John chapter 19. Verse 28, I'm going to read to you from the Amplified Version. It says, after this, and after this is really talking about the excruciating journey of Jesus enduring punishment and wrath. Knowing that all was now finished, said in fulfillment of Scripture, Jesus speaking, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was placed there and so they put a sponge soaked in sour wine and a branch of hyssop and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he expressed three words. Three words that were his final words. Three words which I am hoping become so foundational in our walk of faith. He uttered the most simple yet profound words, it is finished. And then when you look at the original language, because in the Amplified Version, I love the way that it describes it. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and then voluntarily gave up his spirit. That is a key statement. Because we can look at it and we can give a power to humanity to have ended the purposes of God that humanity took from Jesus. But actually, we have to understand the supreme nature of God, that nothing could ever be taken from him. And in essence, humanity did not kill Jesus as much as Jesus gave up his life for us. And that is profound when you start to consider that God in fullness in Christ 
chose to voluntarily surrender his life for you and I. That he gave it up for us. And that when he gave it up, he had you in mind and he surrendered something of such significance that in his life being surrendered, there was a great exchange that would take place that you and I would receive the fullness of life. So he surrendered up his life. Final words, it is finished. It's interesting to note, and I love these sorts of things when you start to look at it. Uh, Jesus was crucified at a place known as Golgotha or known as Calvary. Two different languages describing the place where Jesus was crucified. Golgotha or Calvary in our English language simply means the place of the skull. So that's the actual place where Jesus was hung on a cross, the place of the skull. Now, some people would say it was called the place of the skull because of how many crucifixions had taken place there. Or others would say it was known as the place of the skull because there is an image that you can actually go onto and have a look at of where he is crucified and there is a rock feature that looks like a skull. Now that is just interesting, but what is significant of that place is that he was crucified outside the Damascus gate of Jerusalem. Jerusalem now and Jerusalem then is a walled city. Not so much the new part of Jerusalem, but most certainly the older parts of Jerusalem. The wall still exists. But Jesus was crucified at what is known as the Damascus Gate. Now the Damascus Gate was more at the northern end of Jerusalem, and it was actually at a very pivotal geographical location. The Damascus Gate was called the Damascus Gate because it was on the way to Damascus. Damascus is known as the capital of Syria, okay? Now, we would know there is still fairly significant tension, right? There is all this animosity going on. It was the same then. When Jesus was crucified, it was a significant pathway towards a people group where there was animosity and tension and conflict. I love... And it's me just maybe pondering a little bit and not trying to give you any doctrine or theology. But I love that Jesus was crucified right at the intersection of human conflict. And at that point of crucifixion, he utters the words, it is finished. Now think about that statement alone in, in very practical terms. It is finished. When we say to each other or when we know something is finished, what sort of emotions do we experience? I look at Christian, who uh, read for us this morning, and last weekend it was his 40th birthday, and he ran a marathon, 42.2, just saying to Shannon, it has to always be 0.2. Who decided to add the 0.2? Crazy, okay? But... Christian runs a marathon. I would imagine there were certain emotions that were felt when it is finished after that marathon. Uh, I'm seeing KR projects in the room this morning. And uh, knowing my dad, being a builder himself, 
When there is a project that is on the go and then you get to that point where you can say of a particular project, it is finished, there are certain emotions that I bet you experience. Now, if I can be so bold as to presume on the marathon or on the building project or even chatting to the school teachers at Amplali. I get together with them every two weeks, some of them, and to pray. There are teachers that want to get together and to pray for the school and for their life. And so I've been fortunate enough to be a part of that. I was chatting with some of the primary teachers, because uh, it is just a primary school, uh, pray, play, praying with some of the teachers on Friday, and it was a marking weekend. Uh, being married to a school teacher, I know that the label can get thrown at school teachers, that you only work from, you know, like 7.30 until about 2 p.m., and then you get nice long holidays. I know all that kind of stuff that can be thrown at them. I also know that that's not the reality, and that on weekends like that has just gone by, the overwhelming mountain of work that needs to get through for that weekend, just that thought of it is finished. I would imagine that the Emotions and, and the reality for a life when it is finished is often ones of rest. I can now rest. Marathon runner, I can now rest. And, and there's a certain sense of relief that comes, I would imagine, KR projects, that when uh, the project is finished and it's handed over and the people walk in with a smile on their face and they give high fives, that there is a relief to a degree, that comes with it. And oftentimes that relief is more of the freedom that comes because the burden is no longer carried. And so that statement alone, it is finished. For me, I think rest and I think freedom straight away. And if you think about everything of what Jesus came to bring us, those two words, rest and freedom, are foundational in what the cross and Easter represents. I want to bring it to a close, and I didn't want to take too long this morning. Uh, I, I really did just want to set the tone. But let me go back to that scripture that Christian began with. And he read to us from the NIV version. Um, Floor, don't put this, the scripture up just yet, okay? Sorry, <laughs> I should have told you earlier. Uh, you're so efficient, Floor. I'm sorry, I, I did ask you earlier, and... Now I'm kind of changing things up, only because I have a longer version to read before I get to that one that I've got you. Okay. I want to read to you, and it is a little bit of scripture, I appreciate, but I want to read to you again from the amplified version of that particular verse. And then I'm going to read to you just a snippet from Eugene Peterson's The Message. Every priest stands at his altar of service, ministering daily, offering the same sacrifices over and over, which are never able to strip away sins that envelop and cover us. Whereas Christ, having offered one sacrifice, the all-sufficient sacrifice of himself for sins of all time. For sins of all time. Let me pose a question to you. When you think about forgiveness for your life, do you think of just the sins of your past? Or do you consider that there is forgiveness for the sins of your future too? It's quite easy to think of forgiveness in a past tense, right? 
Because we've done what we've done. We know what we've done. And now we present to God in repentance what we have done. Seeking his forgiveness. And hopefully we receive the forgiveness of what we have done in the past. But very few of us live mindful that if we're going to put anything in a time tense, when did Jesus actually go to the cross? 2,000 odd years ago, right? I'm looking around. Some of you look like you've got a few years under the belt. But none of you look like you have 2,000 years under the belt. And so I am presuming that none of us were alive at the time of when Jesus went to the cross. So in essence, when he talks of forgiveness for sins, one sacrifice for all time, Jesus is actually in a moment in time creating a space of forgiveness for sins in the future. Because we hadn't even entered into creation yet. Our sins that we had committed hadn't even happened And so, yes, he was crucified in the past, but he was extending forgiveness into the future. So when we think of forgiveness and Jesus paying the ultimate price, being the ultimate sacrifice once for all time, consider that your future is forgiven too. But it's to remind ourselves, what is the sin that Jesus actually came to atone for. And ultimately, it was the sin of our condition living separated from God. Because anything that is separated from life is death. And so Christ came to atone for that state of separation. That was the primary responsibility of Jesus to bridge the gap that had existed. And now through Christ and the shedding of his blood, death, the great exchange is that we have life. But remember this, it was one sacrifice for all time. And that statement, it is finished. I'm going to read to you um, from the message. Thank you, Floor. Eugene Peterson phrases it like this. Every priest goes to work at the altar each day. Offering offers the same old sacrifices year in and year out and never makes a dent in the sin problem. As a priest, speaking of Christ, Christ made a single sacrifice for sins and that was it. Then he sat down right beside God and waited for his enemies to cave in. It was a perfect sacrifice by a perfect person to perfect some very imperfect people. By that single offering, he did everything that needed to be done for everyone who takes part in the purifying process. What is the one thing that you can do more of to be more conscious of the finished work of Christ? Are you striving and struggling for salvation? Or are you living from salvation? 
How confident are you to approach God? And what's hindering you?